You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Oh, Father, in your mercy, help us to believe that behind a frowning providence, there does indeed hide a smiling face. And now, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. I've been engrossed in the Ken Burns documentary on the Vietnam War. Um, My father, who skipped church this morning, sorry, he's he's listening, so it was for him, uh, flew 136 combat missions in Vietnam, and since my childhood, I've been intrigued and horrified by that conflict. So while watching the documentary, a man made a statement that has stuck with me. He said, and it was about the Americans going into this war, he said, it's very difficult to dispel ignorance if you retain arrogance. In other words, arrogance and ignorance are a a very noxious combination. Tease my children sometimes when they're overly confident in their opinions. Whatever you do, don't let ignorance get in the way of your confidence. What is it about our humanity and the conditions of it that lead us to such confident positions of arrogance? John Calvin reminds us, we always seem to ourselves righteous and upright and wise and holy. This pride is innate in all of us, Calvin reminds. So in our homes, when no one hears us, we level our criticisms at various folks and family members that we know. We bring them under the critical scrutiny of our all-seeing eye from our vantage point. So we're, we're quick to give narrative accounts of other people's weaknesses and foibles as we look down from our perch when we rarely stop to bring ourselves under the same kind of critical scrutiny. I give this advice to my children, but I really need to give it to myself more often. You see, I like the confidence of my high horse. I imagine you like yours too. You see, this is why we need the heralding of the gospel, the preaching of the good news of Jesus Christ. There is no corner of our existence that is not marked and infected by sin's leading star, pride. I'm riddled with it in ways that I don't even know, and unfortunately I'm also riddled with it in ways that I do know. So this is why the gospel is not just for people who need to get saved. It is for them. It's why the gospel is for us, for the community of faith. We remain in need of constant reminders about the truth of who we really are and the truth of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. So here we are on the the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. Last year we heard about, I mean last week we heard about Sola Scriptura. Today we're entering into a conversation about sola fide. It's a good moment in the life of the church to remind ourselves of our gospel and theological legacy that has given rise to our own church. 
So I, I want to talk this morning with you about God's antidote to human pride and the sole grounds for our future hope. It's that Reformation slogan, sola fide, or uh, by faith alone. What does it mean that our salvation, that our eternal security, that our assurance of hope for future redemption with God and his saints rest on faith and faith alone? Well, Paul gives us an account in Romans 4 of faith and its singular role in the salvation of humanity. It's a classic text, and it's broken into two parts. So despite my Baptist upbringing, this will not be a three-part sermon. This will be a two-point sermon. Thank you. <laughs> and, uh, and here's point number one. Righteousness does not come by the law. We talk about this a lot around the Advent. Righteousness does not come by attendance to the law. We even heard it this morning uh, from Jay Zell. Paul, in this context, is raising a really controversial topic. And I should say, by the way, it's a controversial topic to this day. Who are the real children of Abraham? Or will the real children of Abraham please raise their hands? And as we see in Paul's logic, Abraham's location and time is really important. Abraham comes before Moses and the giving of the law. His righteousness comes through a vehicle other than attending to the Mosaic law, and Abraham's offspring are marked by faith, like he was marked by faith, not adherence to the keeping of the law. Now, I might lose you here, um, but Paul is making a really important point about what the law is capable of doing. And he's very clear, it's not capable of healing us. In fact, the law is that constant presence that, allow, that lets us know that we are not healed. So what can good works achieve? Many, many good things. And yet nothing when it comes to the assurance and the grounds of our ultimate hope and salvation. You know, the rich young ruler was a man, well, he was the kind of man I think that we'd want our daughter to bring home. You'd love to have him working for you. He, he looks out for his mom and dad. He's responsible. He tells the truth. He gives to the church. He's respected in society. But Jesus has to give this young man a Romans 4:14 lesson. Even those who attend carefully to the law really can't live up to the totality of the law's demands. In short, we're sinners. We're sinners in sinful bodies. And we can't escape our bodies. So if adherence to the law, Paul tells us, is our means to salvation, then no one is able. For all of the law's goodness and holiness, the law remains sin's trigger. Calvin began his long and uh, sometimes tortured um, a theology book called The Institutes by reminding us of the knowledge of God and the knowledge of self. True knowledge of who we are and what it means to be a person is only achieved in relationship to God. His holiness, his otherness, his righteousness, his purity, his light. I mean, our tendency, I think, is to measure ourselves by others, which makes us probably at times feel better. But Paul wants us to know we don't measure ourselves by others. We measure ourselves by the goodness and purity of God himself. You thought about this? 
Not only does God do good things, He is goodness itself. He's the measure of beauty, infinity, and truth. So as impressive as our law-keeping might get at times, the law simply can't deliver righteousness because God is God and we remain sinners, infected by the fall and sin's continuing legacy in our lives. So to borrow from Shakespeare this morning, the fault, dear Brutus, lies not in our stars, the fault lies with ourselves. That's point number one. Righteousness doesn't come by the law. Well, here's point number two. Faith is the only human activity capable of rendering us righteous before God. Verse 16, and you can see this in your worship guide, verse 16 tells us that salvation rests on faith alone so that we sinners know that salvation is only by grace. That's why salvation depends on faith. So that we always know that we rest on grace and grace alone. As Paul says elsewhere, if I'm going to boast, I'm going to boast in the Lord. Abraham's offspring are the children of faith because Abraham was marked by faith as well. Have you thought about Abraham's story lately? It's such a wild narrative gets called out of Haran by some means that the Bible doesn't really even identify. Was it a vision, a dream? Did God appear to him? We don't know. And then he tells his wife and his whole family and all those under his patronage were up and going. Well, where are we going? We're going to a place that he's going to show us. I'm sure that was great comfort to his wife. He goes, he goes down to Egypt and Sarah ends up in the harem of Pharaoh, probably not a good two weeks in her life. And then out of the midst of all of this drama, God renders a promise to Abraham. I'm going to give you a child and from your offspring will come forth many nations. It's, um, as we read in the, heard read this morning, um, Abraham believed himself to be dead in that regard. And here arrives Isaac on the scene whose name means laughter. I mean, the arrival of Isaac onto the scene is a kind of cosmic joke. Here's Abraham and Sarah in their old age delivering a son. And we blink in the narrative, and now we're on Mount Moriah with Abraham raising the knife, willing to sacrifice his own son to the Lord because he believed that the promise of God would be fulfilled even though everything in his moment told him otherwise. So what does this long narrative of Abraham attest to us about faith? Abraham's complete unwillingness to let go of the promises of God, even when everything around him suggested otherwise. No unbelief made him waver, Paul says in verse 20, concerning the promises of God. He was fully convinced that God was able to do what God had promised. We were at a, another church in town before we came here, and our pastor, his name was Tom Cannon, I remember one of the first sermons that Tom preached. And he said, uh, people ask me as a pastor, what's your thing? What, what, what do you do? Um, what, what do you hope for your congregants, for your parishioners? And he said, I'm always, I always seem to disappoint them when my answer is very simple. I really want my parishioners 
to persevere in the faith. I want them to hold on to the end. That's my dream for my church. What is faith? The dogged refusal to let go of God's promises. The mental image for me is of Jacob and God wrestling under the midnight moon at the river Jabbok. Thinking about faith and faith's holding on to God's promises. It's more of a, a gridiron scene than the clean, cleanliness and politeness of a, of a debutante ball. Luther could be so off-color at times, um, funnily so, but he didn't mind in his prayer life reminding God of his promises. Paul links faith and righteousness together. Why faith? And what is it about faith that makes it so crucial um, to Paul's gospel logic? So can I clarify just a few things, and then we'll, we'll land the plane of this sermon. It has to be said that faith is indeed a human work. It's something that flows from the actions of humans, knowledge and trust. But here's how one theologian clarifies faith's relationship to justification, that we've been made right with God. Faith alone, he says, is the human work which corresponds on the human side to God's divine announcement of justification. Not because of faith's intrinsic value, not because of its particular virtue or any particular power of its own, but because God accepts it as the human work which corresponds to his work. Or in Paul's language, God reckons it righteous not because of its intrinsic value. I, I can remember as a kid, growing up in the kind of ecclesial world I grew up in, and I imagine some of you did as well, being riddled with anxiety about assurance of my eternal security. I, I didn't know if my prayers were sal for salvation were, were sincere enough or, or if my belief was, um, was strong enough. But remember... Faith is not saving because of its intrinsic value. Faith is the only adequate human response to the actions of God on our behalf. Faith as a human activity looks away from itself to the saving promises of another. The whole nature of faith is that it looks outward and not inward. Saving faith is saving because of the object of our faith. Jesus Christ and him crucified, raised, and exalted to the Father's side. So this is what faith does. Faith stands at the foot of the cross, mesmerized, transfixed on what it sees there. And it refuses to look anywhere else for saving health. Faith stands at the foot of the cross and understands who we really are. I see myself at the foot of the cross. And we also understand who that one is who's hanging between heaven and hell. Faith recognizes that the one dying is dying for her or for him. And then this is what happens as we stand at the foot of the cross. Our hands turn upward in a posture of reception, knowing that we could never achieve through our own efforts what this one is achieving for us. Saving faith is saving because of the object of our faith, not the quality of our faith. See, our tendency, if left on autopilot, is to turn inward 
um, to hunt for fruit uh, to prove our status with Jesus. I was in a local church here recently in town and a lady came up to me afterward and I could tell she, she wanted to be one of the special ones. We measure our faith by its depth and by its own intrinsic value. Faith's only value is its object. As we pray together every Sunday as we come together for worship, there is no health in us. Health only comes when we look to Him. You know, people used to complain that uh, Martin Luther preached about justification by faith alone uh, too much, and he would reply, I'll stop preaching it when you start getting it. Well, we know ourselves, don't we? Salvation by faith alone is counterintuitive to every religious system, even our own natural religious system, our own instincts. We're achievers, we're doers, we're self-sustaining, we're self-sufficient. But not when it comes to our righteousness before God. Not when it comes to our assurance of eternal security. And this is why the gospel has to be preached again and again. It has to be heralded again and again. And this morning, this rainy Sunday morning, is another again moment. So can I remind you of Paul's summative statement of the gospel? It's the first verse of the next chapter where he concludes all of his thoughts in chapter 4. He says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So may I ask you a question this morning? Have the chains crept back into your life? The chains of self-worth defined by the shouting cultural norms around us? The achievements of your children or your grandchildren? The level of your involvement in X, Y, or Z organization? The shape of your body? The reputation of your family name? And these things can crowd and they can choke. They can become our religion without us even knowing it. But Jesus wants you to know something on this Lord's day. He sees you as perfect. He sees you complete and whole. In the words of Zechariah the prophet, he sings over you with joy when he sees you resting completely on what he's done for you. I needed to hear this again. Maybe you did too. And I'll need to hear it again. And you will too. So can I remind you and myself this morning of this good news? If you're bruised by life's waves, and I imagine that many of you are, can you remember the kind face of Jesus Christ? A bruised reed he will not break. A flickering flame he will not blow out. Do remember your confidence and hope. The promise, that, the promise that God gives to you for salvation, it rests in the person and work of Jesus Christ, the only object of our faith. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. 
If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.